Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about Japan from a slightly different perspective. We're going to hear from expats. And expats, there are people who are not born in Japan, but who are living in Japan. They know the culture, they are adjusting to the system, and they try to fit in a Japanese society. Today I'm joined by Maya Matsuoko, a long-term resident of Japan. She has worked both in Bulgaria and Japan in, in various industries, like education, travel, tourism, and IT. However, Maya is also an international broadcaster with a spectacular talk show, Japan Expert Insights. Over the past two years, together with Tim Sullivan, she has developed this talk show into a community hub where international people are listening to stories, to talks, and to opinions of people who know Japanese culture, society, business, and also politics. It's a great pleasure to welcome you, Maya, on my show. Thank you very much for joining me. And the first question, a long-term resident of Japan. Long-term. For some people, it's one year. For some people, it's 45 years. What's about you? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Martin, for the invitation and for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you here. Um, well, a long-term resident in Japan, or I came as an ex expat, expatriate, but I have been here for 21 years now. And uh, yeah, the time just uh, flew away. <laughs> uh, it feels like uh, I came uh, to Japan. I landed at Narita Airport last week. But uh, just without noticing, it's been 21 years now. Yeah. I think, I think you know something about Japan after those years in, in Japan. So it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you because yes. you can really uh, speak from your heart and experience. Thank you very much. Well, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, actually. Uh, but I think that uh, my experience here uh, has been sufficient to let me know as you said, the culture and the people. And of course, my family, my husband is Japanese. I worked for Japanese companies only um, during these 21 years. So, um, yes, I believe that I can share some insights, right. even though I believe that there are people who are much, much better versed in this than I am. However, yeah. hopefully my insights will be helpful to you and your students and your viewers. Absolutely. In the last 10 years, uh, let's, let's speak about Japan and international politics, international relations. How do you see the international voice of Japan changing, developing or being stable in the last 10 years based on your experience? Well, um, yes, when we think about the past 10 years, I would say that uh, the international voice of Japan has not just become stronger, but it has become uh, more confident. Uh, because uh, we know that uh, until uh, the, the second premiership of uh, uh, Mr. Abe, Japan was not really that strong uh, politically and geopolitically, or let's say internationally. And uh, its voice was, uh, I wouldn't call it weak, but not really that confident. And uh, since uh, Mr. Abe actually uh, got into office, uh, he developed the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. He also um, worked to strengthen the position 
and the standing of Japan as an international power in the third world economy, not only in this region, in the Indo-Pacific, not only in Asia, but also in other parts of the world. And yes, I definitely think that, um, once again, uh, I'll repeat myself, but uh, Japan and its voice in the international uh, arena has become much more confident. And we have seen this through the relationships uh, that Japan has uh, built during the past 10 years. Also, uh, unfortunately, uh, after the, uh, the death of Mr. Abe, well, the unfortunate death of Mr. Abe, of course, uh, the following prime ministers, they have followed in his steps. So Mr. Suga did that. Uh, and then the current prime minister, Mr. Kishida, uh, they have also, um, they have continued actually the strategy of strengthening the political, uh, geopolitical um, position of uh, Japan. So, yes, we are seeing uh, how Japan is actually becoming a much more important player in the world uh, politics. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned that confidence, confidence mm -hmm. before and after, what is that confidence about? Is it like relations or relationship with who? With, with major players like United States or the regional players or correcting some international relations for Japan? Can we elaborate on that confidence? Like, because it's, it's quite interesting. It is, yes. Uh, I think that it's both uh, with uh, major players like the United States, uh, uh, also uh, with the European Union, because the European Union is uh, still a major, major player. Uh, in the world geopolitics, uh, but also uh, we can see how Japan has developed um, or has continued to develop actually relationships with the middle powers and also with smaller countries uh, by, uh, well, through different means, of course. Japan has continued uh, to um, help even smaller countries, the smaller economies to develop their infrastructure. And uh, not the least also, uh, Japan continues to work uh, with China, uh, which is, I believe, a very important thing if uh, we you know, uh, consider the preservation of peace in the region, because, uh, um, of course, uh, China has been assertive in the past decade or so, but at the same time, we know that uh, communications with uh, all the powers in the region and uh, on the world stage are very important for preserving peace. And Japan has been uh, very good at doing that. So, yes, I would say that this has been, you know, um, that confidence has been uh, built through um, establishing and developing relations uh, with uh, different countries, re regardless of uh, their standing. Of course, uh, those relationships, uh, they are based on... Um, different as i said it could be funding of the infrastructure for the smaller um, countries or it could be uh, you know developing um, economic relationships when it comes to um, different industries so when we talk united states and china or the european union and of course maintaining the status quo with uh, countries like china and taiwan and also uh, here in the region with other countries in the region right that was that was very very interesting explanation. And how do younger people connect to this phenomenon? Like, for instance, uh, I mean, people after graduation when they finish university, do they also see that difference in international relations? Do they also feel more confident to 
for instance, go abroad and get a jobs in UN international institutions and to represent Japan in, in that way that, that you just, just explained? Well, that's a question that has quite a few layers. Okay, we and... have time for a few layers. That's all right. <laughs> okay. Well, talking about um, the young people's awareness of geopolitics and the international standing of Japan, I would say that uh, in general, um, the young generations here are not so interested in international affairs. I believe that uh, while they really want to have uh, leadership, political leadership that uh, gives them uh, the confidence that Japan is uh, one of the powers in the world, they are not really that much into geopolitics or not even that much into politics either. Um, they very seldom actually uh, do search either you know, in the library or online. And I'm not saying that it's the case with 100% of the younger people here, but I would say that the majority is not that interested in politics and geopolitics. At the same time, um, yes, when we talk about uh, young Japanese studying abroad, there has been a, de a decline in the number of uh, people are willing to go overseas and study in uh, foreign universities as well. And I believe that there are quite a few reasons for that. But uh, when you think that Japan is really a very comfortable place to live, um, you know, it's difficult to, you know, just get your, um, how can I put it really, um, to get your bags, pack your bags and go somewhere to study. Uh, just because, uh, you know, you want to go overseas to do that. And there is another reason, of course, that until recently, uh, Japanese corporations uh, that were considered uh, the most uh, desired places for work, you know, and employment, they didn't really value that much um, overseas education. They value much more uh, the education in uh, elite Japanese universities and this is a very, very big factor when it comes to uh, young people's decisions about uh, choosing uh, what institutions they want to study uh, at. But I think that the pandemic and the current economic crisis, the global economic crisis at the moment, has changed that perception, not entirely, but to a certain uh, degree. And um, yes, I believe that uh, more corporations will be willing to actually employ uh, young, uh, young people who have studied overseas. Again, this process is not going to happen or this change is not going to happen overnight because we know that in Japan everything happens, um, you know, it takes time. takes time. And it usually takes twice or three times longer than other countries. But this change is... Uh, happening it is slow but i believe that it is not going to it's not going to actually uh, stop it's going to continue and when you mentioned those elite japanese universities or educational institutions uh, i think you you were thinking about those major free like keio waseda tokyo uh, and and i think you know it's it's quite well known for the world but do you also think that those educational institutions are reflecting what you just said, you know, that those institutions are also trying to improve the international collaboration 
or they are still staying at, as national universities. Can you see any movement in that area? Uh, yes. So uh, my impressions are not first-hand impressions, uh, but what I hear from uh, people in my network is that uh, those institutions, they're trying to change as well because uh, they used to um, they used to attract more international students uh, until maybe 10, uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, especially, and also during the, the bubble economy here. Uh, but then there was a slump in that trend, and now uh, they once again they realize that Japan needs fresh ideas and uh, fresh blood, so that uh, even you know those universities and those institutions they can come up with uh, innovations and new ideas as well. So I believe that uh, again this is going to take time, uh, but this change uh, is inevitable here, and uh, of course uh, the institutions will be moving into that direction for the next uh, maybe five or ten years. I, I know that you are well connected to many scholars, business people, the experts in Japan. And the question is, in terms of that change in the confidence on the international arena, how is the political thinking changing? When I say political thinking, I'm speaking about the politicians, about people in power who are, let's say, in 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, like not graduates, but like really experienced people. In the last 10 years, again, let's apply this layer. Have you noticed any changes in the political thinking? I mean, political thinking in international relations, but also domestically. Oh, that's a good question. And I think it's another one that is difficult to answer. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's... Okay, if we think about the past 10 years, I would say that... Uh, well, um, there wasn't a big push uh, for change uh, before the pandemic. And uh, even though uh, Mr. Abe, so before the pandemic, uh, until, you know, he actually left uh, the um, position of prime minister, he was working very hard to uh, develop the idea and promote the idea of uh, a free and open Indo-Pacific, also to build relations, uh, relations between Japan and uh, world powers, middle powers, and also other countries. So in uh, the sense of international relations, yes, there was a change, I would say, but domestically, not really that much. Of course, uh, we know that um, also everybody has heard about uh, the abenomics, you know, and uh, in the beginning, there were a lot of hopes about that. Um, the three pillars, uh, you know, Mr. Abe came with, of course, with the big push, but there wasn't much done at that time, even though there was progress. You, of course, you cannot deny that there was progress in that direction too, uh, in terms of uh, economic uh, measures. But uh, in general, um, I think that uh, the goals that were set in the beginning, uh, let's say 10 years ago, were not reached, despite the improvements, you know, and the measures that, that were set in place. And uh, of course, it is um, 
I know that uh, critics of this would say that, yeah, nothing in Japan ever happens, you know, no change in Japan. But um, you need to appreciate the fact that it's very difficult to move the huge government, you know, and the people in the government and make them change. You know, it takes, uh, I think that usually changes in Japan need generational changes. And so it's, that's why they take time. But the pandemic, well, definitely it's sped up, you know, the realization that Japan needs to change, that they really need to do something. And of course, um, so now the government has eventually faced up the demographic challenges, you know, the economic challenges, also the, um, let's say, security challenges. And when I say uh, security challenges, I'm talking also about the cybersecurity, because everybody, you know, uh, and everything is getting digitalized nowadays. And without cybersecurity, you cannot actually have a safe government either. Yes, but also the, you know, the geopolitical, uh, I mean, security in the, the geopolitical sense of the word this way as, uh, as well. So, yes, there is, uh, there are changing happening right now. Mr. Kishida came with uh, um, his, um, let's say, um, idea uh, about uh, new capitalism. And uh, we'll see. Of course, the skeptics are going, uh, they are saying that nothing will change and nothing will happen again. But at the same time, even though um, he has been criticized a lot, and there is, you know, there there are reasons for him being criticized, still a lot of things are happening here in Japan. So we are seeing uh, really um, digitalization of the government once again, something that uh, nobody thought about uh, before the pandemic. Uh, of course, we're also seeing uh, digitalization in uh, the healthcare um, and uh, also a lot of other things, you know, uh, in the fintech industry, there are a lot of changes. Uh, in the transportation industry, there are a lot of changes. Um, a, a lot of cities here in Japan, they're uh, ready, they're actually open, you know, for uh, developing smart cities uh, on their in their areas, uh, because that's uh, that's the way to the future. And now, of course, uh, the green transformation and uh, everything. I mean, a lot of things are happening right now. Right. So even though the media do not report on all of those changes, you know, they're going, they're going on, they're happening. Yeah. You mentioned several times uh, that changes in Japan take a long time. Why is it that? Why why is that so specific for Japan? Um, Well, there are quite a few reasons, and I'm going to uh, give you some of them, and uh, my explanation is not going to be exhaustive, so please forgive me for that. Well, I believe that um, those reasons are mostly cultural. Um, Well, first of all, um, the Japanese uh, tend to uh, think, or that's part of the Japanese mindset, that if it is not broken, there is no need to fix it. And uh, something to be broken, it really needs to be very, I mean, very broken okay. so that it's working, right? And I would say that, um, you know, the Japanese are very good at small changes, uh, incremental changes. And uh, so, but even every incremental change takes time because, because everything, you know, in order to change something, you have to gain 
the agreement of everybody in your group or your organization, you know, and it takes time. That's why in Japan they have the memoashi process and they have, uh, um, you know, that all the uh, meetings and everything that are actually put in place just to gain the the agreement of everybody in the, you know, in the group that is in charge of that incremental change or whatever you call it. So it takes time. And uh, yes, also, I believe that uh, there is another another reason that um, most of the people in uh, powerful in power and also uh, leadership positions, they are uh, well into their 60s, sometimes 70s. And those people, um, they are not very open, you know, uh, to changing things because you know how it is. Oh no, you're not that old, actually. So <laughs> you don't know how it Thanks. is. But uh, yes, uh, to me, from my uh, observations, uh, it, it seems that uh, once, uh, and that's for the not not everybody's like that, but the majority of people, you know, once uh, they are beyond sixty, they are not very open to change uh, and to new ideas. And that's one of the things, you know, Japan needs young people in leadership. So, and the country, the culture is not supportive of that. So, <laughs> I understand. I, I, I fully understand what you what you try to to tell. On one side, it's like okay because the preservation of the culture is quite mm-hmm. strong. But on the other hand, those innovation movements that are needed might you know turn against Japan in the long term. That that would that would be my my position on this, you know. Despite Japan is like very technological country, and you have all those you know research centers, but still you need everyday change to continue to keep a pace yes. with the world as well. Yes, I I agree with you a hundred percent. And then there is one more thing, you know, that it's really um, fascinating if you live in Tokyo, then uh, you don't notice those changes in the infrastructure here if you leave the the, you know if you have lived here for two or three years and you leave the city for one year and you come back and you notice how much the city has changed just in one year and i'm talking about infrastructure development so like buildings uh, old buildings are are demolished you know new buildings are built and uh, also um, new um let's say new areas are developed uh, urban areas beautiful areas you know it's just amazing but this is different from uh, the whole i it's different from politics and it's different from uh, the organizational structure you know like uh, corporate culture and everything so while the hard i mean the infrastructure here is changing all the time constantly we have uh, you know the, on the other side the soft on the soft side Things are not moving that fast. And I agree with you, uh, just as you said, there are good sides to that, right? So the preservation of culture, the traditions, the values of the society, they are still in place and they are very strong. And that's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing because it gives people here something, you know, that feeling of being grounded and belonging to their own culture and society. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And when we mention Abe, and we know that assassination, you know, in recent times, uh, 
Can we assess the impact of ABE on society? And the second question would be, how is the legacy of ABE received by the current politicians and diplomats and actually by the society in, in Japan? Because Abe was one of those leaders that left some significant track in international diplomacy when it comes to Japan. Mm -hmm. So I would like to speak about this, if, if you can. Uh, well, I think that uh, even though uh, there are many critics who say that economics was a failure, I think that there are a lot of things that were achieved. And once again, um, you know, <laughs> so, um, of course, uh, a lot of people may disagree with me about this, but if it wasn't, uh, or if hadn't, if it hadn't been for uh, Prime Minister Abe at that time, you know, talking about uh, womanomics and having more more women in managerial positions, Japan would have been even, uh, you know, even worse than it is at the moment in the international. Um, rating you know in uh, uh, about women in uh, politics in uh, corporate uh, structures and so on so uh, because in japan most of the things and uh, to work they have to start you know from the top so a lot of things here happen because ideas are pushed from top down and uh, he managed actually to uh, initiate the conversation about women and women, uh, you know, uh, having more women in uh, the workforce, having more women in uh, managerial positions and so on. So once again, uh, it wasn't as successful as, you know, uh, many people hoped, as I hoped. I really hoped that it would be much, much, uh, you know, the goals would be achieved and uh, would be even um, exceeded. Uh, but if, uh, but still it's, it's, you know, a small step and it's still a step forward. Because once again, things in Japan happen very slowly. And uh, well, now, of course, um, I think that um, the following governments, they, they, they need to continue talking about this. Because if the governments then talk, they, if they don't talk about it, you know, things will just uh, go under, under the radar once again. Um, another thing is, uh, you know, um, well, that's the liberalization of... Um, I think that we started with the Bank of Japan, you know, and their liberal policies and so on. So I think that, uh, of course, it was, you know, the, the intentions behind those policies, they were all good intentions and there were many hopes, but they were basically uh, not really <laughs> so so successful. And uh, hopefully we'll see, you know, a change uh, in these policies from April on. And uh, yes, on the other hand, uh, it's, um, I, th I can see that there is uh, one trend that is, it has both negative and positive um, uh, implications. Uh, and it is um, basically encouraging companies uh, to, um, you know, to change the, um, let's say, uh, their hiring practices. Because uh, we also know that traditionally the Japanese companies, they hire people and that's a lifetime employment. And that trend actually started with uh, uh, Mr. Koizumi, I believe, accelerated uh, under Mr. Abe. So more and more people now, about 40% of the workforce, of, I think that of, uh, the women actually who are in the workforce, they work uh, uh, part-time. 
and uh, it's really the it's not a stable you know stable employment at all and the number of uh, people uh, who are in an unstable uh, you know part-time positions is much higher than it used to be so this is really a negative um, um, negative implication and hopefully it will change uh, as we go forward because uh, Japan definitely at the moment it has uh, a very strong need, deep need of having more people in the workforce. Of course, uh, it's difficult for uh, the government to ease the immigration policies for many reasons. Uh, so they will have to find a way, you know, to um, encourage the corporations uh, to raise the, you know, also the wages, hourly ages uh, of those who are in uh, uh, that's unstable employment. The, not only, you know, the full-time employees. And we'll see what happens. Hopefully it will work out well and uh, more women will actually join the workforce. But there are other, you know, uh, problems, other challenges there that will have to be solved. What about people that were working with Abe and his legacy? Like, is this legacy there or basically, those people they they disintegrated, and the legacy is is you know like forgotten already. Well, no, I don't think that they are. They have been for not. They haven't been forgotten. So, you know that uh, Mr. Suga, he was uh, uh, Mr. Abe's uh, second hand, yes. and he served for, I think maybe a, a year, over mm -hmm. one year. Uh, yes, uh, after Mr. Abe, and. Uh, the media don't talk about him a lot, but uh, he's still actually uh, in uh, the LDP, and he's—I believe that he's biding his time. Uh, he will may come up, uh, you know. Uh, he he might surface once again, you know. Uh, he's actually quite powerful in uh, the LDP at the moment because even though he doesn't have his political faction, he has a group of about thirty. Uh, people and uh, that group can actually uh, influence uh, the decision-making uh, process, you know, uh, in the LDP itself by changing the balance of uh, the power balance within the party. So yeah. no, uh, this is just one example. But uh, the other people, they haven't disappeared. They haven't been forgotten. Uh, they are still there. So we're going to hear about uh, them. Uh, I think at some point in the future. Right. And can we talk a little bit about the structure of the politics in Japan? Because you mentioned LDP. I'm sure that 90% of my students don't know about LDP. Can you explain like how many political parties you have and, and what does it mean decision-making process in Japan? Is it like super complicated? <laughs> what I can tell you briefly is that, yes, Japan has uh, two houses and the upper and the lower house. And basically the bills are first, uh, and they, they have to be uh, submitted to the lower house. Uh, and then if uh, there is uh, a majority, you know, uh, that um, uh, accepts them, then they're uh, actually, then they go to the to the upper house. And but basically, they have to be submitted uh, uh, by. Uh, I think that is the LDP, and forgive me if I'm mistaken. Uh, but within the LDP, uh, when I'm to when I talk about decision making there, so uh, within that huge party, that's the Liberal uh, Democratic Party. 
This is the, the largest one in Japan. It has been in power forever with just, uh, uh, you know, one or two times when uh, it lost power for a very sh- short period of time. But um, so there are factions there and those factions, uh, they always uh, fight uh, for power within the party. And uh, of course, sometimes they disagree. But in general, uh, even though they disagree, uh, you know, they come up with... Uh, uh, bills uh, legal with laws uh, that uh, actually follow the policy that has been devised within the party. Political scene here on the scene, you have other parties as well. You have uh, the smaller parties. We have the Komeito, uh, Ishin Nokai, and we have the opposition. And can, in, can uh, we say can we say that Japan Japanese Japanese government is a one single party? at the moment, because you said that LDP is the largest party. So when when Japan wants to implement changes and regulations, does it go through this process as a one-party agreement? Like, you know, it's it's much easier to agree on something when you have one-party rule than when you have, like, for instance, in Germany or France, where you have more parties and they must, you know, reach an agreement to pass the law. Uh, well, basically, uh, you know, when the bills are proposed by the LDP, uh, they have to pass uh, first through the lower uh, house. And there, so of course, there is opposition there. So if uh, the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party and Komaito, they are uh, usually in, um, uh, in a, not usually in agreement, but... Uh, uh, they uh, collaborate anyway. So... Uh, you know, they they can vote, but if they don't get majority, so some of the bills may not be passed. And of course, uh, in uh, in the in uh, the house, uh, it's not only these two parties. There are two or three other parties as well that not always, you know, support the bills. Of course, they are in opposition and they have different uh, uh, policies. They want uh, different bills to be passed, and uh, so that's happens here so it's not like you know the LDP has all the power so it can it can unilaterally pass the bill because that's quite that's quite interesting to hear from the international perspective because sometimes we expect that if there is one big party or major party you know the government can adjust to the international what's international community wants for instance you want to pass this regulation or that regulation and we expect Japan to do it quickly and it's not <laughs> happening quickly. It's not happening quickly. So therefore, therefore, I ask this sophisticated question because always internal politics and international politics, they are connected. And this is basically the one of the principle that people should understand that sometimes we expect too much from the countries in international relations. But it's not possible to do it because internal politics is fragmented Sometimes there is no majority and sometimes we are waiting and waiting and change is not coming, not because mm-hmm. the people don't want to, but the process is more complicated than we think. Oh, no, it's not simple at all. And there are a lot of, once again, a lot of uh, powers there, you know, that uh, try to, to change the balance. Yeah. So, yes. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the things I wanted to ask is related to intellectual property. In the past, we had statistics rankings and Japan was always on top positions, always. What happened in the last five or ten years? Because we see that in Japan, 
there is a dramatic decline in registering, you know, like property, intellectual property, ideas, innovations, patents, you know. I mean, what's going on in Japan? We're not used to that change. Yes. Um, well, you are right. So um, there are a few things, you know, that indeed since 2012, actually, the numbers of uh, submitted, uh, that's um, patent registrations or, you know, so they have declined dramatically. And uh, I think that um, one of the reasons, and once again, nothing here is just one-sided and there are a lot of underlying reasons for everything that is happening um, in this country. But um, one of the reasons is, of course, uh, I believe the, the, aging situa- uh, the, the, the aging population, the demographic changes here, uh, because, um, well, the older uh, the population becomes, you know, the less uh, the less willingness and uh, energy there is for uh, innovation. And I believe that also the innovative ideas, uh, the number of innovative ideas actually gets smaller. Uh, on the other side, uh, it's, um, you know, the corporations here in Japan, they have... Um, well, they they really have a lot of uh, retained earnings that they keep, and they say that these retained earnings, they are there for um, you know times of crisis. Uh, and then, uh, even though um, once again, it's like you know, if you if you try to innovate things, you need to invest into innovation, and you you need to invest into research, but uh, research. Although research is not so risky, innovations can be, right? And once again, we know that um, basically there is a general aversion to risk here in Japan. So this is another reason, I believe. And um, well, also universities, there is one more thing that I believe um, very few people talk about is um, universities do research and they try to, you know, uh, also work on innovations. But in recent years, it seems that a lot of the research is done for the sake of research. I see. Not so much because there is some disconnect between the industry and academia here. So, and they, that gap has been growing in recent years and that gap in order you know to reverse that trend it needs to 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 be closed so um, i believe that one way you know to close it to actually um think about uh, let's say university startups you know or you know different schemes there are different schemes for that but yes that definitely needs to be changed so and I am sure that other people will come up with even more exhaustive answers to your question. Perfect. So please forgive me if it is not enough, but I hope it answers answered your question to a certain degree. Definitely. But you mentioned aging and demographics. You know, in international reflection, we read statistics that Japan is having troubles with demographics and aging. What does it mean in real life? in Japan from your perspective? Like, how do you see this problem in your life, in daily life of Japan? Yes, that's another good question. Well, there is, yeah, one thing. When I when I come, come home from work, 
And when I get on the train, I don't see that many uh, people in their 20s or, you know, even 30s. Uh, I can see more people. Definitely the balance is changed, you know. And I can see more people in their 40s, 50s and 60s. Uh, of course, if you go to Harajuku or Shibuya, you know, you will be surrounded by, um, you know, teenagers and people in their 20s. But I'm talking about, uh, you know, my commute time uh, in the, uh, back home from work. So that's one thing. And uh, yes, also, I can see in my personal life, uh, if you allow me to go really personal. So my mother-in-law, she lives uh, in a, an apartment building, uh, uh, you know, in just near us. And I can see that in that apartment building, maybe 70% of uh, the inhabitants are actually uh, retired people. So, uh, and it's like, then what happens, you know, uh, in, in 15 or 20 years, who is going to live there? You, you know, it's just something when I start thinking about it, it makes me feel sad, really, because, uh, yeah, the generations, uh, the, the changes, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm not saying that senior people are not, um, I mean, the Japanese are very, very genki, you know, the word genki, they're energetic and uh, um, generally very positive towards life, but still there is that shift, you know, towards uh, a more settled way of thinking, a more settled way of life, and uh, so on. What What do you think is the main reason why Japanese are not having more children? Is it the lifestyle, the hard work, and the time management, or the different reasons like is, is it difficult to have a child in japan for me as a foreigner i think japan is one of the best places to have a child and to raise a child still um i think that the local uh, i mean the young japanese uh, they their perception of having a child usually comes from um, how expensive it is to put your child through the educational system here. For me, as a foreigner, once again, I believe that you don't have to send your child to the most expensive educational institution. But um, here in Japan, if you do that, it's also a matter of prestige. And uh, in many, uh, in the minds of many Japanese people, it is still, um, they believe, you know, that if you do that, the future of your child is going to be um, bright and uh, not so difficult. Because uh, if you uh, if you graduate from Keio or Waseda University or you know other universities and even the national universities here in Japan, um, big corporations uh, will be happy to to hire them and employ them. So this is uh, a huge huge factor. In um, you know, in um, I believe this unwillingness among the young Japanese to have kids. Another one is, of course, uh, that there is a perception here in Japan that uh, the corporate culture is really very tough, and it doesn't allow young people to uh, stay or take time with their families. And the young millennials, while this was okay, you know, for uh, Generation X, 
it's not okay with the young millennials here because they want to have more time with their families. So it's really another cultural shift that we have been observing. And I believe that cultural shift uh, is present not only in Japan, but in other uh, parts of the world. Right. Thank you. That, that was interesting explanation. I, I, I have to say a few things also. I'm connected with a few professors from Waseda yes. Keio University of Tokyo, but also with universities that are outside of these three. For instance, you know, like smaller universities in the south of Japan, you know, there are there are universities in Kyoto, which which are very good. So I think sometimes I think that Japanese they think too much about system of the perceptions of how prestigious are the universities. Because I think those smaller universities in Japan, they they you know the research over there is excellent. The, the level of education is is excellent, and it's like sort of British style. You now we also have Oxford, Cambridge, and Andrews as three leading universities in international relations. But we also have universities that are fantastically well prepared to develop talents. So sometimes I I do really think that Japanese should reconsider that word prestigious because i think it's too much associated only with like three four universities and and it, it creates tremendous pressure on parents because everyone wants to go there everyone wants to be keio or waseda or university of tokyo but you know as i said you know in japan you have excellent level of education and sometimes i think it is very underrated by japanese themselves Yes, I, I would agree with you on that because uh, some of uh, the uh, smaller colleges and universities here that specialize in certain fields, they provide uh, really good education. And as you said, they have uh, good uh, research laboratories and everything like that. But yeah, so the image, you know, the, the brand of those, uh, you know, top universities is still very strong yeah. in uh, the minds of uh, many people here. Right. Let's speak a little bit about current unpleasant issue, which is the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And it's far away from Japan in terms of distance, physical distance. But the problem is that we see Japan sitting on two chairs. The first chair is they support Ukraine and Japan is against the war, of course, because of the peace movement and sort of philosophy of life in Japan. So so Japan, you know, would like to see the peace and they strongly support Ukraine in political terms and in international diplomacy. The second chair would be observed from international perspective is Japanese energy situation. That Japan is still buying energy resources from Russia and by payment for those resources Japan de facto is directly supporting Vladimir Putin because Japan is bringing money to Russia. And I would like to ask you how Japanese people understand that situation and what can you tell us about Ukraine 2022, Ukraine 2023 and Japan international outlook? Yes, uh, well... I think that my opinion is uh, quite um, unusual and it, it diverges, you know, from uh, the official opinion 
of the European Union, the United States and everything. So, um, and many people can dis I mean, are welcome to disagree with me, but I think that Japan has a very practical um, approach to everything. And um, I believe that, uh, well, we don't know whether by that, I mean, by paying uh, for the resources, you know, that uh, Japan uh, outsources from uh, Russia, we don't know whether those uh, that money goes directly, you know, into uh, creating weapons, uh, you know, by 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 Russia the, to, to fight Ukraine. So nobody can say that for sure. And um, but in addition to that, once again, Japan has a very practical approach, and Japan knows that Japan needs the government knows that it needs to take care of its population, of the Japanese population. And uh, so uh, also Japan has been supporting Ukraine and uh, at the same time, Japan is against the, the war there. But, uh, you know, uh, what comes first comes first. It's your, your people who, you know, who will um, actually feel the, the consequences if you stop uh, supplying energy resources. So um, I cannot say that uh, Japan actually is uh, really... Um, going against, uh, you know, against Ukraine or against uh, the, let's say, the collective uh, policy of uh, NATO, because Japan is basically almost a member of, of NATO. It's not a member, but almost anyway. So, um, and yeah, that's uh, my opinion is, uh, I think that the, the, in this sense of the word, that pragmatic and practical approach, it's uh, the way uh, in which the Japanese government actually takes care of its economy and the population here. Mm. We, we had the same in the European Union, because when the war started in February, the European Union also didn't cut the supplies from Russia. And we filled all our gas storages, you know, during the conflict. And, you know, until the time when there was explosion for Nord Stream 2. So this is quite interesting situation. And I, I intentionally put this question for people to think about it from different perspectives, that sometimes we judge Japan quite strictly, but we are yeah. forgetting about what was happening in European Union three, four months ago. Yeah, so I think this is an interesting perspective for all people to think you know, when you say you support Vladimir Putin, but, you know, if you have a sort of research critical review of how much money the European Union sent to Vladimir Putin, that's shocking. Yeah. You know, it's, that's, that's absolutely shocking when after that you are judging other countries. So this is one of the questions or topic that we have to be academically critical and we must say on both sides, you know, how the situation was. I think it's very important to stress that both sides, you know, send some money and now they have to deal with the consequences. That's how it is. And but I also believe, if you allow me to add a little bit, um, you know, to this, that in, of course, we have seen that economic sanctions don't work. And uh, I mean, economic sanctions against uh, Russia. They don't work uh, because uh, it's just the European Union, you know, and a couple of other countries that have uh, um, implemented the, the sanctions. 
I believe that instead of doing that, you know, and just um, having your, um, you know, your population suffer from these uh, sanctions, all the, the countries, they have to concentrate on ways of finding, you know, um, let's say, avenues for dialogue and solving, you know, uh, the conflict there uh, through diplomatic means, not via, uh, you know, by uh, prolonging the, the military conflict there. But diplomatic means, because I, I haven't seen that being done recently, especially, you know, uh, in the second half of uh, uh, 2022 and in the beginning of 2023. To me, um, I, I source my information from different, uh, you know, media, uh, official and also uh, private media and so on. I haven't seen any willingness, you know, from um, our side to actually reach out and, you know, try to solve the problem in a diplomatic way. And that's a pity because um, I believe that instead, you know, of uh, actually saying, uh, yeah, we support Putin by buying resources or we support uh, Ukraine by sending uh, uh, weapons, we just pro prolong the conflict and the suffering of Ukraine. And uh, yeah, I definitely, I'm, you know, I believe that the conflict should be decided, uh, resolved actually through diplomatic means. Right, thank you. And let's jump to the last question of today's interview with Maya, and that's the regional relations: Japan versus China, and Japan versus South Korea. What can you tell us about the current development? And how you, as expat living in Japan, see the improvements or stability or some negative points of these relations? Because I think this is sort of underrated area. And for Japan, these countries are the closest countries, you know, like China, South Korea, Taiwan, business partners, political partners, regional stability. With the, United, with the United States, you have the Indo-Pacific security and stability. So how, how can you assess those relations? Complex. Okay. <laughs> In one word, uh, the relations are complex. Um, of course, there are uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of layers once again. We have, you know, um, uh, the historical... Uh, heritage of the Second World War. And uh, we also have, uh, I mean, the, you know, the relations between Japan and China and Japan and Korea, uh, they go much, 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 uh, they're much older than uh, World War Two. But uh, because the World War Two happened just 70 something years ago. So the wounds of that time are still fresh in those two countries. At the same time, they realize, and Japan, the three countries actually realize that uh, if they want to um, have um, stable economies, they, they need to work together. And so in uh, this sense of the word, uh, they have actually worked very hard to uh, develop the economic uh, relationships between them. So, um, and of course, we know that Japan and China, they, they have a lot of, uh, many Japanese corporations, many co companies have factories in China. And uh, of course, uh, you know, the, it's the same with uh, 
South Korea, a lot, uh, also a lot of uh, South Korean companies, they work with uh, Japanese corporations as well. So it's really a complex uh, problem. I think, uh, yeah, the political and uh, also economic uh, levels, they are different because in terms of politics, you know, there is always something that comes up and there, there are a lot of tensions there. At the same time, you know, the, um, the industry, they, they, they don't pay that much attention to those uh, political uh, challenges. They continue to work together. And, um, yeah, that's also when we talk about uh, travel and tourism, you know, there are huge, there is, I mean, huge exchange of tourists between the th- or among the three countries. Of course, during the pandemic, it stopped. But imagine that uh, before the pandemic, you know, out of 32 million uh, foreign visitors in Japan, over 7 million were Chinese. And the next, you know, uh, largest uh, market source was uh, South Korea. And it was the other way around. It was the same. So... Uh, people basically people like each other you know uh, they don't uh, they're i mean i have friends who go to they used to go to korea and they're going to go to korea once again you know when the uh, the, the borders are open but they used to go to korea every month for nice. the weekend you know or every second week so because they love the country they love the culture and it's the same with china so, yeah. yeah, because in, in Europe we have a slightly different perspective because if I want to go for a holiday, I just go to France, which is like one hour by flight, you know, or I go to Germany, Italy, Spain, Greece. But Japan, you know, when you want to go to Greece or France, that's like planning for half year, you know, because you must have the holiday from work and then you have to buy flights and everything. So, you know, it's it's very different perspective. And I think people don't realize that, you know, that Japanese so isolated in terms of the physical distance like to fly to japan it takes so long you know it's it's a matter of planning (laughs) and everything but thank you very much maya for today's great interview about japan japanese international relations politics diplomacy business and academics that we mentioned thank you for having me and i wish you all the luck with your talk show and all the viewers can see the information about Maya's talk show in description. Please join the talk show. It's a very informative. Maya speaks with academics, with business people. And I really like the show, especially when you want to know more about Japan and real life in Japan. Thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you. And see you next time. And all the best to you and your viewers as well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.